Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. And I'm Ron Martin. And we want to wish you a very Merry Christmas this Christmas morning. The Christmas season is upon us, and there are so many issues around the subject of Christmas, the person of Jesus Christ, the historicity of the Gospel accounts. We're going to be interviewing Dr. Gary Habermas, who you'll remember from last fall. We did an interview with Dr. Habermas. We're also going to be interviewing Dr. Craig Blomberg. Both these men are phenomenal experts on the evidence for the life of Christ, for the validity of the Gospels, and things like that. You might remember them from works like The Case for Christ, The Case for Christmas, and many other resources. And it's going to be a blast having them on the show today. Most of you remember Dr. Habermas as the Distinguished Professor of Apologetics and Philosophy and the Chairman of the Department of Philosophy and Theology at Liberty University. He has also authored 36 books, including The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, Beyond Death, Exploring the Evidence for Immortality, Did the Resurrection Happen?, A Conversation with Gary Habermas and Anthony Flew, The Historical Jesus, Ancient Evidence for the Life of Christ, The Risen Jesus and Future Hope, In Defense of Miracles, A Comprehensive Case for God's Action in History, Resurrected, An Atheist and Theist in Dialogue, Why is God Ignoring Me, What to Do When It Feels Like He's Giving You the Silent Treatment, What's Good About Feeling Bad, The Thomas Factor, Using Your Doubts to Draw Closer to God, Resurrected, Tangible Evidence that Jesus Rose from the Dead, and Dealing with Doubt. He's also been quoted in numerous other books and is known around the world as the expert on the evidence for the resurrection of Christ. Once again, thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Habernus. Well, I'm glad to be with you guys, especially this time of the year. Absolutely. appropriate Mer- for discussion of uh, historical matters in Jesus. Absolutely. Merry Christmas. Well, thank you. Merry Christmas to you folks, too. Before we get to the bigger questions, I wanted to ask you kind of a personal question. What favorite traditions are you looking forward to this Christmas, and how will you and your family be celebrating? If my family heard you ask me that, they would they would all laugh because there's <laughs> several things that, that I like to do, and everybody thinks he has all these little deals in his mind that he thinks makes a good Christmas. But uh, I guess several things we like to do. My wife and I like to drive around and uh, look at lights. That's one of our favorite things. We have a half dozen family birthdays during the month of December. Wow. So those are a number of times excuses to get together as a family. We think that's great. Every Christmas Eve we have a service at our church, which is just fantastic, sort of a candlelight communion service. We love that. Mm-hmm. Those are a few examples. But on Christmas Day we have about 30 people over at our house, and it's uh, kind of crazy, but it, there's nothing like being with family. Well, Doctor, we'd like to jump in right away and talk about Christmas and the historicity of Jesus, the impact that his life had on our world. And I think the first thing that comes up in the area of talking about Jesus and Christmas is the supernatural element of his life, who he was, what he taught, what he did while he was on this earth. What do you think is the role of miracles in the Christmas account, and how would you defend them to a doubting world that looks at Jesus as basically a good person? but nothing more than that. Well, if you'd asked me that question, say, 30 or 40 years ago, I would have said something like this. I would say, well, there's a lot of miracles in Jesus' life. We don't have evidence for any of them like we do for the resurrection. So if the evidence for the resurrection is that good, why shouldn't we be open to the rest of the miracles? So I would kind of have argued from the resurrection to the other miracles. In the intervening 30 to 40 years, a lot more data 
have come to light. And strangely enough, today, scholars across the spectrum, believe it or not, conservative, moderate, liberal, virtually everybody describes Jesus as an exorcist and a miracle worker. And that doesn't mean everybody believes that he did supernatural things, Mm. but they generally concede that there were circumstances like those described in the Gospels where people came to Jesus hurting and left Jesus healed. Now, everybody has their own view about what's going on. But, I mean, the general historical narratives have been vindicated. And I think maybe the best indication of this is a two-volume work that has just appeared from the pen of Craig Keener, a prominent evangelical New Testament scholar. I think the two volumes are in the neighborhood of 1,500 to 2,000 pages total. They're huge. And they're not only a defense of the New Testament miracles, but they're also a defense of miracles today, things that are still happening today. And as one of the major reviewers, Richard Baucom, said about Craig Keener's book, he said, after reading these volumes, who's afraid of David Hume? Um, (laughs) So I think we're really entering into a new day where many of Jesus' miracles are being defended and on quite amazing new grounds. So what would be your response to someone who said, well, there's a difference between calling all of life miracle or, you know, some kind of supernatural basis to the distinctiveness of Jesus and what he brings to us at Christmas? If they were asking that in a challenging sort of way, say as a skeptic or a questioner, a seeker, agnostic, whatever, I would tell them to interact with some of this material. I think that this trend that I was talking about a moment ago is so exciting. In fact, I told Craig Keener, the fellow who wrote that two-volume set, I told him about a month ago, I said, if somebody said to me, you've got a weekend to sit down and read, take a book or two, I told him his book has catapulted to first place on the list of something I'd want to spend time with. I tell the person asking that kind of question to interact with the data and not to let their presuppositions seep in, but just to see what's out there. Because plainly, if, for example, things are still happening today in answer to prayer and Christian circumstances such as that, I think that says a lot about the past and God's workings in history as well. Mm, Absolutely. And we all know Hume's statement that if something is not empirically verifiable or true by definition, it should be committed to the flames. And Coincidentally, that statement itself is neither true by definition or empirically verifiable. And so the critic doesn't really have a leg to stand on here, I don't believe. But interestingly, when I talk in different circles about the evidence for Christ, it seems like the atheist's response is always an attack on the virgin birth. And like you've discussed in your book, in defense of miracles, a comprehensive case for God's action in history, miracles are plausible and possible in our world. And that being said, probably the miracle that you are most well-known for defending is that of the resurrection. And like you just mentioned, if the resurrection is true, then we would have every reason in the world to believe the virgin birth as well. Would you take a few minutes and just tell us a little bit again about why we can believe that the resurrection is a fact of history? I'd be glad to. You know, it's kind of interesting that we think about these major holidays and on Christmas morning, You know, there's nothing wrong with looking ahead toward Easter, not as a holiday, but I mean as far as encapsulating the life of Jesus between those two grand, well, for us, celebrations, but celebrating these events. And if I were going to argue for the resurrection, fellows, I'd 
use a method that I call the minimal facts method. I actually kind of developed it while I was working on my doctoral dissertation many, many years ago at a secular university. But the way I argue is if the skeptic is sitting on one side of the table and the believer is sitting on the other side of the table across from each other, and in between is a list of data that we both share. Now, the conservative is going to say, well, I accept the whole New Testament, and the skeptic will say, well, I accept virtually none of it. They have their own positions. But in the middle, there are a number of points which both sides agree are pretty well established. And my practice, my argument, is that if we use only those pieces of data, those data points, that skeptical scholars, no matter how far they are to the left, and conservative scholars, no matter how far they are to the right, if we use those points of data which they share, which are very, very easy to find in the relevant literature, I think that the things we know, the things we share, are a sufficient basis to argue that the resurrection is the best explanation. Now, inevitably, the critics come back. We've already touched on it. Inevitably, the number one critical comeback is something like, well, all right, I can see how the resurrection fulfills this data, but you have a basic problem. You Christians have a basic problem. Those things don't happen. You know, I have a number of responses that I make to those sorts of things, but a couple of things I would do is I would say respond to the data that say that miracles are even occurring today. That That's a worthwhile response to show them that their kind of world is not the way the world is. Another response is, is I wonder why is naturalism, the worldview that says the natural world is all there is, I wonder why naturalism should be the default setting of the universe. I wonder why we should assume it before we discuss this. I mean, sure, from their viewpoint, these things don't happen. But from the Christian viewpoint, they happen all the time. So look at the data and decide on that. And if the resurrection is the best explanation for these facts on which we agree, then I think the skeptic has issues. Talking about what happened between Jesus' birth and death and resurrection, we would discuss his life. And you've written on that topic as well, the historical Jesus, ancient evidence for the life of Christ. There are a number of people, including Colorado-grown atheist R.G. Price, that try to make the claim that Jesus Christ never existed. Obviously, his birth and Christmas itself would be invalidated if that were true. So why do doubts about Christ's existence continue? Is it ideologically driven? Is it evidentially driven? I've thought about that for a long time, and I do think they are ideologically driven. I do not think they are evidentially driven. If you interviewed the leading atheist, skeptic, I, I don't care how far to the left they are, but if you interview scholars who have doctor's degrees and well-known positions and well-known publications, they would almost without exception say that the view that Jesus never lived is ludicrous. In fact, just recently somebody sent me an interview between Bart Ehrman, who's probably the best-known skeptic in this country, and one of these Jesus Never Lived folks. And Ehrman was just going off on him. He was <laughs> just saying, you don't have any basis for that. You're not treating this the way an historian does it. It was amazing. So one of the first things I want to say is when people say Jesus has not lived, I think you're talking about mostly the fringe of those who talk about this. 
uh, on the websites that make those kind of moves, as far as I know, there are very few people among them. Now, there are a few, but there are very few people among them with doctor's degrees and positions in universities and teaching and writing books. It's very, very few. It's folks that just kind of go off. And I think they might be running from a response that says, look where the data are going. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's just easier for them to say, I'll tell you what, I'll just say there are no data at all. I mean, I wonder if that's the way they shut people up or try to shut people up, just to deny the whole thing. But some of the moves they have to make to say that, I think it's fair to say they are generally, they're totally rejected Hmm. in the scholarly skeptical community. So there's a real differentiation between skeptics who are trained and skeptics who are almost always untrained and who go off in the direction of Jesus never lived. Almost none of the trained skeptics teach that. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR 91.9 and 93.9 FM here in Durango and KDUR.org online. We're interviewing Dr. Gary Habermas about reasons and evidence for Christmas. So I know the non-existence of Jesus is outside the mainstream of academia, and even critics like Barterman readily agree that he is a historical figure. So why should we believe in the life that's described in the Bible, and frankly, that we celebrate on Christmas, what is the evidence for Jesus' life? If we would go back to the illustration I've used a couple times of data that people on the left and people on the right share, if we gave a list of what emerges from these sorts of studies or what is conceded today, the average Christian would say, yep, 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 and they'd kind of go down the list and kind of check things off. Scholars would only admit things on that list that are very well attested. And I think there have been some moves recently in New Testament scholarship that have also brought things a little bit to the right. Richard Baucom's book, for example, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, an excellent book on the reliability of the Gospels and what kind of eyewitness testimony could be said to lie behind the Gospels. But I think of another earlier study in the early 1990s, Richard Burridge, who was a classical scholar at the University of London, and he did some rather major research that I understand. I'm not a New Testament scholar, but I understand it's been accepted by probably the majority of New Testament scholars. He argues that the New Testament genre of the Gospels, the Gospel genre, is very similar to Greco-Roman biographies, that the point of the Gospels was to write a biography much like people who wrote famous biographies of Greek and Roman figures. Those sorts of moves by Burridge and Bauckham, the point of them, the upshot has been to recast the Gospels in historical forms. That doesn't mean that critics accept everything in the Gospels by a long shot, but it means that they're starting to see more of an outline emerge of things that they think are believable and things that they think are reliably ascertained. I think that's the sort of thing that's happening today that we can be pleased. How do you respond very briefly to the claim that Christmas itself and and the story of Jesus is just an adaptation of pagan holidays? You mentioned the Greco-Roman world, and there's still a lot of folks that fly this accusation around that Christmas is merely plagiarism of pagan holidays and that the individual of Jesus was basically the early church's 
idea of exalting this man who existed in this time and the whole, you know, December 25th versus a springtime date. Does that have any validity, and how would you answer that? We could have adapted a day that was a pagan holiday. I mean, that seemed to have happened. In the 4th century, Hmm. when the Roman Empire, let's say, adopted Christianity as the religion of the empire, we definitely don't know what day, but I'm not sure we know that we can pinpoint nearly the time when all this happened. Some have said if shepherds were out in the field tending the sheep, it probably wasn't in the dead of winter Mm -hmm. because that would have been kind of rough. Some people say like maybe September. Now for Easter, we're much closer because we know that because of the time of the Passover and things like that, we know that Easter is a spring event. But the birth, to be quite honest, is really hard to pinpoint as far as a you know a general, let's say, month or mm. season. Mm-hmm. Do you think that any of those accusations would detract from the truthfulness of the gospel accounts? No, I don't think they have anything to do with the gospel accounts at all because, of course, There are no dates given in the Gospels other than things like shepherds out in the field tending their sheep. Outside of things like that, there's nothing in the Gospels that date or even hint. In fact, you know, most of us are familiar with the early calendar era, Mm -hmm. error, and that the vast majority of scholars believe that Jesus was born before Christ. He was born (laughs) B.C., So the birth of Jesus is often placed at about 3 or 4 B.C. That's just not a question that the Gospels answer. So, no, it's not a shot at the Gospels because the Gospels don't even address it. And the question about the date does not imply any sort of doubt about the evidence itself and what that date celebrates. So it's exciting. I guess I don't want to keep you too long. And I wanted to give you, uh, I guess, ask you one last question, then give you an opportunity to talk to the listeners about the meaning of Christmas. So last question would be, just in summary, is Christmas a celebration based in history or mythology and why? When you say Christmas, you know, it's hard to separate it from all the commercialism and everything else. Santa Claus is what so many people think about. But I think for Christians, if they were to think about what Christmas stands for, it really starts the great Christian story. It involves such great teachings as the Incarnation, God becoming man. It involves, of course, the virgin birth and Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem to be registered and things like that. It is the beginning of the Christian story, and it is associated with these truths, like I said, Incarnation, the virgin birth. So I think it's a great place to start the Christian tradition. We started out this program talking about family traditions. I think families would do well to incorporate these sorts of traditions into their family, too, that it's not about just the turkey and the Christmas tree and the opening of presents, but it's a time when we celebrate what that means for Christianity. It seems like we're less about that at Christmas time than we are at Easter time. So it's a good opportunity for us to to spend time with our families, but to make it clear to the little ones in particular what Christmas is all about. Absolutely. Would you like to share anything with our audience this morning about what Christmas is all about and maybe how they could experience Jesus this Christmas? Yeah, well, I, th- I think, you know, I, I've done this, I've made the comments in kind of a Christian context, Christian families who are getting together on the holidays, and we started with traditions. And 
But of course, many people don't think of Jesus that way. Many people don't think of Jesus as Savior. Many people aren't committed to him as a son of God and so on. In this interview, we've been talking about the evidence that we have and that Christianity isn't a leap in the dark. It's not a, oh, well, I'm just going to let go and hang on to God. Christianity is something which even the New Testament is incredibly linked to history. And so I would say to people, if they've not entertained the Christian message for themselves personally, this is an exciting time maybe that while Christians should be talking about what Christianity means and what Christmas means in terms of the incarnation, the virgin birth, maybe it's a time for seekers to give some thought to what some of this evidence is and uh, maybe entertaining the case for Jesus. In, in the words of Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, what would that look like? In fact, that would be a good place to start, to get a hold of a book like that and just start reading popularly. I got an email from a lady this week who told me she was reading that book by Lee Strobel, and she became a Christian through studying it. I had no idea who she was, but it was a neat story. Maybe that would be a place for people who have not heard this or not heard the evidence would be to start and take a look at a little bit of this and start their own journey. Well, hey. I don't want to keep you too long. I am absolutely thankful beyond belief that you join us on the show, Dr. Habermas. And it's been a pleasure getting to talk to you about Christmas and about some of the evidence for Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And before we go, I want to encourage our listeners to visit GaryHabermas.com. Again, that's GaryHabermas.com, spelled G-A-R-Y-H-A-B-E-R-M-A-S.com. Please visit GaryHabermas.com and find out more about Dr. Habermas. And also, I would encourage you to go to Amazon or any place that you buy books and type in his name and look at some of the books he's authored and get your hands on a few. And I just got a Kindle this past week, and I can't wait to get some of your books on the Kindle, Dr. <laughs> Habermas. Well, thanks, fellas. That's very kind of you. Thank you so much for being on the show with us. Have a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you folks, too. Enjoy your time with your families. Bye-bye, Bye-bye now. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR 91.9 and 93.9 FM here in Durango and KDUR.org online. Next, we have the wonderful opportunity to get to interview Dr. Craig Blomberg. Dr. Craig Blomberg also was on the show last fall. He talked about evidence for the Gospels and for faith in Christ. He is the Distinguished Professor of the New Testament at Denver Seminary right here in Colorado. He has authored and edited many books, including Gospel Perspectives, Volume 6, The Miracles of Jesus, The Historical Reliability of the Gospels, Interpreting the Parables, Jesus and the Gospels, An Introduction and Survey, Neither Poverty Nor Riches, A Biblical Theology of Material Possessions, The Historical Reliability of John's Gospel, Making Sense of the New Testament, Three Important Questions, and Contagious Holiness, Jesus' Meals with Sinners. He has also been quoted in numerous other books, like Lee Strobel's Case for Christ, and of importance today, The Case for Christmas. I would encourage you to pick that book up, The Case for Christmas. You can find it on Amazon, and you'll enjoy Dr. Blomberg's section in that book. He's known around the world as one of the foremost experts on the New Testament and the Gospels. So welcome to The God Solution, Dr. Blomberg. Thanks for joining us, and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you also. Good morning, Doctor. How are you? Good. How are you? Doing great. It's great to hear you. Thank you so much for taking a few moments with us. Before we go any further, what is your favorite Christmas tradition? Probably one that 
goes back to my childhood, and now that most of the Swedish relatives on my father's side of the family have passed away, it's not an ongoing one, but we used to have wonderful Swedish holiday food, everything from potato bologna and silta to limpa bread, cardamom coffee cake, rice pudding, all the fun old Swedish culinary treats. <laughs> it sounds great. Yeah, it's making me hungry. Well, Dr. Blomberg, we'd like to start with a question, being that Christmas is upon us, such a, a highlight of the year for Christians, but for those that view the story of Jesus somewhat from a skeptical standpoint, or even those that would disparage the life, birth, death, and the resurrection of Jesus, they usually start by attacking the Gospels. What do you think is the core evidence for the reliability of the life of Jesus as depicted in the Gospels of our New Testament? And how would you go about challenging someone to view them as historical fact as compared to mythology? Certainly the literary genre of the four Gospels most closely resembles biography and historiography from the ancient world. The dating of the events and the time lag between them and when the Gospels were written down and the time lag between when the Gospels were written down and the earliest manuscripts that we now have is a much shorter period of time than for almost all other works from the ancient world. And so there's very high probability that people wrote the accounts who were in a position to know what actually happened and that those accounts were copied very carefully so that the translations of the Bible that we now have come from very accurate sources. It was an age when the cultures surrounding the ancient Middle East and the Mediterranean world in what we would today call oral cultures committed large amounts of important epic and even sacred traditions in their various societies to memory in ways that boggle our minds today but uh, it's been demonstrated in all kinds of different walks of life because of the importance of the events around the birth, life, and death of Jesus and resurrection. For his first followers, there would have been every desire to treat those accounts carefully and with reverence. So you put all of this information together, and unless one is willing to be uh, agnostic about world history in general, for more than just a few hundred years ago, the evidence for the life of Jesus is about as compelling as anything we have. Now, that is a great explanation of why we should accept the Gospels and their validity. In the Gospels, we find the story of Jesus' birth, which is what we're celebrating today. And many different atheists would try and say that the virgin birth and Christ's birth in general and the different stories that surround it are nothing more than a myth or a story that the early church perpetuated. And I guess I'm going to go ahead and read a quote that I pulled from an atheistic source. It says, It would be simple to say that the nativity story people find so engrossing today couldn't possibly have happened as they experience it. Indeed, it's not even possible for believers today to claim the Bible as an authoritative source for their story because it just doesn't appear as they tell it. When we look back at the standard nativity story and its sources, we should begin to realize that what people take for granted as the nativity story today 
isn't presented in neat, straightforward terms in the Bible. It is instead a cultural creation that has been carefully woven together over the centuries from bits and pieces found not just in the Gospels, but in other parts of the Bible as well. So how would you respond to that atheistic tidbit? And why should we accept the story of Christ's birth as it's presented in the Gospels? What's intriguing about that quotation, as long as it is, is that it never actually says anything. It never actually (laughs) gives any objection. It doesn't say what isn't straightforward. It doesn't say what comes from other sources. It says uh, someone could very easily say this, but it doesn't actually give any reasons what would make it easy for them to say it. So it's kind of hard to respond to an affirmation that doesn't contain any any argument or any evidence. In fact, there are no bits of information that I'm aware of from anywhere else in the New Testament that have ever been read back into the Christmas story. There's all kinds of things in terms of modern celebration for Christmas, uh, and I'm not just thinking about Santa Claus and the snowman and all of that stuff, but Many Christians are aware that the average manger scene puts together a lot of things that wouldn't have originally been together. Matthew describes things that took place as as he explicitly tells us in chapter 2 of Matthew after Jesus' birth. And he has the Magi coming to Bethlehem when the baby Jesus and his parents are living in a house which is quite different than the cattle trough that we know of as a manger that appears in Luke's account. Luke is describing the events immediately surrounding the birth of Jesus. There's no contradiction there. They're just telling different aspects of the same story. Is it possible that Mary conceived without a human father? Well, then we're asking the question of, is anything miraculous possible? And that's another important but separate and long conversation. It's interesting that science is today, much more so than a generation or two ago, in general, far more cautious about saying what could and could not have happened, especially if a God actually exists. But if I'm starting with the presupposition that it's impossible for there to be a God, and therefore there's, it's impossible for there to be miracles, sure, I'll object to a number of features of the Christmas story and a number of features of many other parts of the Bible. Even then, that doesn't necessarily call into question the rest of the story, since the evidence from non-Christian sources is so strong that there was somebody by the name of Jesus who was a leading Jewish teacher and was crucified under Pontius Pilate in around A.D. 30. If he lived, then obviously he had to be born, and there had to be some accurate information about his birth. So even if one were to be suspicious of the miracles and strip them away, that wouldn't be any reason for rejecting the rest of the information. And that was just so you know, that was just from an atheistic website. It wasn't a quote from a mainstream atheistic scholar, but kind of typical of what might pass as a, oh, sure. an authentic objection on a college campus. I talk with people that read sites like this, and they hear statements like that, and they think, oh, There's no evidence whatsoever that Jesus Christ lived, died, was resurrected. And I've even had people say, I don't even know if Jesus could have existed. But if he did, who knows what he was really like or what he really did. And I think they're picking that up from different sources like this, which, again, are far outside the mainstream of academia. 
Very much so. And the really scary thing about anybody who would do that is that these are people that hopefully, for their sakes, will get employment and will become the next generation of teachers and lawyers and doctors and scientists and construction workers and everything else. And I certainly hope that in whatever professions they're being someday paid to perform, that the way they determine what should and shouldn't guide them in those occupations is not uh, the first website that they randomly hit at because who knows what it may say and there may be seven or eight different takes on the same topic and only certain ones of them responsible. It's very sad, tragic that anybody as far along in their education as college would ever on any topic except one random website without any sense of whether it represents a scholarship or accuracy. Well, we're trying to correct that tragedy this morning by allowing you to tell us a little bit of what is true and what is trustworthy, and so I hope some of those students are listening this morning. <laughs> Dr. Blomberg, what would you say to someone, maybe not the hardline skeptic, but maybe someone who is looking at Christmas, who maybe has some kind of spiritual experience or orientation about them, maybe someone involved in the New Age, or in uh, one of the peripheral beliefs in Jesus that see him essentially as a good person, but maybe not God in human flesh, like the evangelicals would claim. How would you work them from that position to a position closer to the New Testament and seeing the real picture of who Jesus is? Again, if the key issue is simply a philosophical or scientific one, that there's too much supernatural that's involved in all of that for them to believe it, then that would be the kind of conversation that we would have to take. Do miracles happen today? Craig Keener, leading New Testament scholar and a very prolific author, has just published this fall uh, two large volumes from Hendrickson Publishers that are simply entitled Miracles. He has amassed the largest collection under I'd say one cover, except it's two volumes under two covers of documented supernatural events, many of them parallel to biblical miracles from every continent on the globe, and many of them quite recent. People who don't believe that there are events similar to the biblical miracles that have to date no scientific or medical explanation happening in our world today simply have their heads in the sand. On the other hand, it may be that someone has very different kinds of questions, and it's not that they're not open to the miraculous. If they have some spirituality to them, they may be, in fact, very open to them, but the question is quite different one, such as, aren't the stories of Jesus' birth really too much like stories that most scholars, including Christian scholars, would quickly say are mythological, are legendary, surrounding the birth of other ancient heroes and figures in the first century or before, in which case then the conversation would need to go in a quite different direction and to say, well, there are a lot of people out there who are saying that these days, but have you actually looked at the supposed parallels? The ones that have really anything close to the kinds of details we find in the New Testament all date from a post-Christian time. So uh, the New Testament writers could not possibly have borrowed from them, but it's very possible that someone wanting to support Mithraism, for example, uh, an important Roman cult in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, hmm. 
try to make their religion look more attractive by likening it more to emerging Christianity than it had been in the first century and before. If you look at those legends that are clearly pre-Christian, the so-called parallels are pretty remote. Alexander the Great, centuries after he lived and died, and for the first time centuries afterwards, did have some myths emerge about him that weren't there in his earliest biographers. And one of them was that on the night Alexander was conceived, his father, trying to uh, approach his mother, was unable to because of a giant python entwined around her body. Well, that'd scare anybody off. Um, and that was the virginal conception of Alexander. Well, my goodness, when you read the New Testament accounts, all that one reads is that the angel tells Joseph that Mary is pregnant with no explanation of how that is possible. And Luke adds that earlier on, Gabriel had said, the Most High, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Holy Spirit, there's none of the uh, physiological interest that you find in in a lot of the ancient pre-Christian myths. Mm. It's also somewhat misleading to refer to all these parallels as involving virgins, because in most cases, they were not women who never had any sex. It was simply myths of a god appearing in human form and having relations with a woman who was already sexually experienced in which case, yes, there's divine paternity in the story, but even then, through seemingly normal human sexual relations, which is not what uh, the Bible ever says God did in uh, in approaching Mary. So once you start looking at the uh, so-called parallels, you discover they're, they're not so parallel at all. Uh, one of the ways that we hear this presented, I think one of the most common questions slash objections uh, about the the early life of Jesus and the birth of Jesus is the opposing genealogies in Matthew and Luke. And some have even said that that proves that Jesus was not uh, a descendant of the Jewish King David as the Old Testament would predict that he was. How do you respond to those kind of objections? How would you walk someone through that particular issue of the different genealogies? There are a number of issues there. I suppose the heart of it is that Luke, in Luke 3, takes Jesus' uh, ancestry all the way back to Adam, the first man, and then refers to him as uh, the son of God, whereas Matthew starts with Abraham and goes forward, is much more selective. The old King James Bible language of somebody begetting somebody else that sometimes gets translated as being the father of can also mean being the ancestor of. So it's very clear, even just comparing Matthew with the Old Testament, that there are plenty of generations that have been left out. But probably the main issue that people are talking about when they claim that the the genealogies contradict each other is that the last third or so of each, from the time of the Jewish exile in Babylon on, have completely different sets of names. There are two explanations for this that have been given throughout church history, and we probably don't have enough information to know which one of them is actually correct. One is that Matthew represents Joseph's lineage and that Luke represents Mary's. There's reason to believe that Mary herself was from the line of David, and so even just the maternal line in Jewish circles was enough to establish a legal ancestry 
But Joseph, who would have legally adopted Jesus as his son, also can trace his line back to David, and an adoptive lineage was also legally satisfactory. So uh, there's no problem either way of Jesus coming from the right messianic lineage. The other possibility is that Matthew represents Joseph's legal line, sorry, that, that Luke represents Joseph's human line, because in the Jewish world, something was practiced called the Leveret Law. When a husband died with his wife still childless, she was encouraged, if a brother existed, to remarry that brother. And then children, if they were born to that family, were considered legally equivalent to the deceased husband's children. And so you can actually have two sets of parents or children with completely different sets of names. Bart Ehrman makes a, a whole lot of fun of that concept uh, <laughs> yes, in uh, some of his writing about supposed contradictions in the Bible, but mm. he's just ignoring a very basic principle of Jewish law and how uh, adoptive children were treated. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR. 91.9 and 93.9 FM here in Durango, and kdur.org online. We're interviewing Dr. Craig Blomberg right now about evidence for the Gospels, and particularly the evidence for why we can celebrate Christmas today. So both the case that you already discussed of Luke saying that shepherds visited the manger and Matthew saying that wise men visited a home later on, we would readily see that as not a problem. I know Ehrman and others would say there's a problem there, that those are contradictory. In reality, we see them as divergent aspects of the same story, which provide more information. Also, the same thing with the genealogy issue. So what about the different divergent aspects of the Christmas story in the Gospels? Those are a couple of them. Are those reasons to doubt the Gospel story of Christ's birth, or are they just extra information? Not unless you take divergent biographies of any person who's ever had more than one author write about them, and simply because one person includes certain aspects of an event and another includes different ones, especially when they do, in fact, overlap in numerous important details, when, as is the case of the birth narratives, standard critical scholarship does not assume uh, that Matthew knew Luke or Luke knew Matthew, nor is this even a place where uh, the so-called Q document, Teachings of Jesus, common to Matthew and Luke but not found in Mark, comes into play because he's still a child. He's not teaching anybody anything. So we have two independent accounts that both agree on the names of the parents, the name of the child, the role of angels, the locations in which things took place, the uh, biblical significance in terms of the fulfillment of prophecy of all of this, and other uh, more minor details, once you have that kind of agreement, but then it happens that one writer adds information about who visited on the night of the child's birth, and another writer happens to add information about what took place two years later, leading to Herod going ballistic and ordering all the children two years old or younger in and around Bethlehem, baby boys, to be massacred. Why would he go up to age two unless this was a considerable time later? 
there's nothing contradictory about that, and nobody sees those as contradictions in any other biographies. They just somehow have a double standard when it comes to the Bible and say silly things about how it must contradict itself there. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think it's obvious that these divergent details are just different aspects of the same story. And the critics often try to say that putting those different aspects from the different Gospels together into one narrative is not okay. Ehrman, for example, and Jesus Interrupted over and over and over, tries to pull out numerous different contradictions in his words, which are just different aspects that come from different Gospels. And he says if you put them into one, you're creating a fifth Gospel, and you just can't do that. And I'm always shocked by that kind of approach. I don't think we would do that with any other historical figure. We would try to get all the sources and find out the full picture of what really happened. So what is going on in their approach, and why are they wrong in trying to say that we cannot combine the different divergent aspects from the Gospels into one narrative? There actually is a nucleus of truth there that conservative Christians could do well to learn from, and that is that when we want to read a particular gospel, when perhaps we're in church listening to a preacher speak from a text, from an identifiable gospel, we don't want to so clutter up that passage. We don't want to include so much information that we might find from other parts of Scripture that we lose sight of what, let's say, Matthew is trying to teach in what he decided to include and what he decided not to include. From that point of view, I can agree with Ehrman that God did not inspire a harmony of the four Gospels. And so when we read from Matthew, we shouldn't talk much about shepherds or mangers uh, because they don't appear there. And we should teach and preach and read and reflect on and learn from what he does include. And similarly, if we're in Luke, then we shouldn't be talking about the Magi. And if you want to have fun with your manger scene like we've done when our girls were smaller and still living at home, you can put the Magi across the room someplace because <laughs> it'll take them quite a while to arrive. They haven't gotten there yet. On the other hand... To then say that for historical purposes, not to create a fifth book of the, the Bible, the gospel according to, to Bart or whoever, but that for historical purposes we can't combine information for more than one source in order to get the fullest understanding, well now you're just doing something that no historian does anywhere else in the world with any other part of world history. And I think it's confusing those two bits that Bart has done, whether consciously or unconsciously, and a lot of people don't stop to think about the difference. Well, we don't want to keep you all afternoon, Dr. Blomberg. I guess we would like to, but we yeah, do we, want to respect yeah. your time. <laughs> Real quick, I have to ask, because I know you mentioned it a minute ago, and I just want to give you the opportunity, if you'd like, to elaborate on it. There's a whole lot of prophecy about Jesus. Some say over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah. And some of those had to do directly with Christmas. What about prophecy that was fulfilled in the life of Christ? We have to distinguish different kinds of prophecies. I think 300 is rather exaggerated. I'm not sure where that number came from. But even if you say there are as many as 100 texts, 
a large number of these are not, when you look at them in their Old Testament context, future referring statements to something that will only happen at a distant time down the road. They may be uh, a statement like uh, Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I called my son, which uh, referred collectively back to the children of Israel uh, coming out of Egypt at the time of the Exodus. But Matthew, in Matthew 2.15, will understand that in what scholars call typology, recognizing that God acts in repeated patterns of behavior throughout history, and is it merely a coincidence that just as God's first covenant with Israel was established when he had to bring his people out of Egypt, uh, led by a man named Moses, who had at one point to uh, have intervention to spare his life as a child? Is it just coincidence that when the new Moses comes, the one who is the new lawgiver, the inaugurator of the new covenant, that also as a baby his life was spared when people sought to kill those like him and fleeing to Egypt, he later returned to Israel and hence came out of Egypt? No. For the believing Jew in a world filled with providence, that's way too coincidental to be coincidental. (laughs) It's a sign of the sovereign God at work again, and that's a form of fulfilled prophecy every much as the more direct prediction and fulfillment, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Anybody who can't trace their parentage to Bethlehem need not apply. So you have both ends of the spectrum, and you have examples of partial and repeated fulfillments as well. Once you understand that whole range of kinds of prophecy and fulfillment, but understand it from a theistic Jewish perspective, it does remain a very powerful reason for understanding that Jesus is the one intended by God to deliver his people. What would you like to share with our audience this morning? Again, this is on a secular radio station, and a lot of people in our audience maybe do not yet have a relationship with Christ, and maybe Christmas is more the social holiday with Santa and gift-giving and all this. What would you tell them about the significance, meaning, and trustworthiness of the Gospels as far as the story of Christmas goes? I would take off my uh, Christian hat and put on my historian's hat, and I would say no matter what your experiences with religion may or may not have been, No matter what you think about the Bible today, uh, this is a collection of books, uh, 66 books, 27 of them form what's called the New Testament that has had more impact on people's lives, on education, on literature, on the history of world civilization than any collection of books of its kind or any single book in the history of the world. Maybe it's a delusion. Maybe it's a fantasy, but if you are uh, someone who thinks that you would like to be educated and make decisions in a rational way and understand the world of ideas and the world of 7 billion people of whom barely more than 1% actually consider themselves to be atheists, why is it there is so much belief and always has been in religion, then you owe it to yourself to uh, 
if not read the entire Bible, at least read the New Testament and select any one of the four Gospels that you like. But if you want to tie it in with Christmas, take Matthew or Luke, since those are the two that include stories of Jesus' birth. And even if you only read one Gospel from beginning to end, if you haven't done so recently, consider doing it. And if you're an open-minded person, consider uh, praying to a God that you may or may not know if he's there. God, if you're there, would you uh, disclose yourself to me through reading this book and see what happens? Could you share a website or a blog that people could look you up at and find out more about you? www.denverseminary.edu is our Denver Seminary website, and I do write about once every couple weeks on one of several faculty blogs on the website, so it's not something that I do repeatedly each week, but you'll see a link to uh, blogs, and then there'll be something called New Testament Musings by Craig Blomberg, and it would be delightful to have somebody peek in now and then. Well, sure encourage the audience to do that. Well, thank you so much. It has been an absolute pleasure to get to talk to you this afternoon. Uh, We appreciate your time and uh, wish you the uh, merriest and most blessed Christmas, uh, you and your family, and best wishes to you and all the faculty at Denver Seminary. Thank you very much, and to you and yours as well. Have a Merry Christmas. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. We would encourage you to go to Amazon or any other bookstore and look up Craig Blomberg, and Gary Habermas, and find some of their books. If you enjoyed hearing about some of the evidence here this morning, you'll find a whole lot more in the numerous books that these two wonderful authors have put together. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this wonderful Christmas morning edition of The God Solution and getting to hear from these renowned experts, both Dr. Habermas and Dr. Blomberg, had a lot of wonderful evidence to share about why we can trust that Christmas is not just a celebration of myth, It's not just Santa Claus and Christmas trees, but there really was a baby born 2,000 years ago, God in human flesh, who lived a perfect life, who died a painful, agonizing death on the cross, taking your sin and my sin upon himself, paying for our sin. The Bible says he literally nailed it to the cross, and then he rose again, and even his resurrection is a fact in history that there is tremendous evidence for. Having heard this, I hope you have a wonderful Christmas morning knowing that you are not celebrating in vain. There is good Mm -hmm. evidence for your celebration today. And my hope is that you will make this the greatest Christmas ever by, if you haven't already, putting your trust in Christ this morning, saying, Jesus, come into my life. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. Forgive my sins literally turning your life over to him to be your Savior and Lord. He says that if you take that step this morning, you'll be adopted into his family. And this really will be the greatest Christmas of your life. You know, Nate, around our house, we don't tell Bible stories. We tell Bible history. And I think it's fascinating that both of these men who are deeply involved in the academic study of of the Bible and uh, the historical studies of the period of the Bible see a trend in our country in academia of leaning toward the truthfulness and the historical accuracy of these documents. And to me, it comes down to this. If the Bible is a historically reliable source for who Jesus is, what he said, what he did, how he died, and why he died, then it deserves our attention. 
And I would agree with you that this Christmas, this is the ideal time uh, in your own lives to carefully explore the claims of who Jesus is, carefully think about how you fit in a world where the truth of God's creation and a God that would send his son into this world to die for us, to live for us by setting the example and to die for us, that we can experience a relationship with him. I think nothing would make a better Christmas than spending time reading your Bibles, exploring these issues, and like you said, to invite Jesus, and as Dr. Blomberg said, to invite Jesus to teach you about himself in these documents and accept him into your life. As we always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. And that's our hope, that you'll find them this Christmas morning. Thanks so much for listening to The God Solution today. We hope you have a wonderful Christmas. Merry Christmas. Silent night.